you haven't already done so, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Those verses that Sam read for us, our focus this morning is Acts chapter 5, uh, verses 17 through 21. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. And if you were with us last Sunday, you will remember that at this point in the history of the church, many signs and wonders were being regularly done by the apostles among the people. And those signs and wonders that were that seemed to be a, a regular part of the early life of the church, those signs and wonders had two, at least two, effects. First, they identified the apostles. Luke tells us that the apostles were all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared to join them. That, that suggests to us that the, the identity of the apostles was known. Everyone knew who the apostles were because the signs and the wonders that were being done by their hands, I identified them. And that meant that no one could just pretend to be an apostle without being quickly exposed. God was showing who his chosen instruments were. And that's really the second effect of those signs and the wonders. Those, those signs and the wonders not only identified the apostles, they also validated them. The apostles claimed to, to speak and to write with Jesus' own authority. They, they claimed that their words to, were to be received not as the words of mere men, but as the very words of God. And such claims should not be taken lightly. Someone who claims to, to speak for God should not be just believed. Such claims require proof. And the signs and the wonders that were being done by the apostles were that proof. They were the proof that validated the apostles' claims to speak with God's authority. And it was this, this recognition and this validation that really put the question to the people of Jerusalem, and particularly to the high priest and to his party. The, the high priest and all who were with him, they're here called the Sadducees. The high priest and all who were with him had to decide how they were going to respond to the testimony of the apostles. And really they had two choices. First, they could receive the apostles' testimony. They, they could recognize that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the Christ, the anointed one, the, the promised Savior who has come to, to bring to completion God's work of redemption. But receiving the apostles' testimony would have required the high priest and the, uh, the priesthood as a whole to to adopt the attitude of John the Baptist, who you remember, he, he said to his concerned disciples when, when Jesus' popularity was growing, he said, no, no, he must increase, I must decrease. John recognized that his ministry was to point to Jesus, and that when Jesus arrived on the scene, it was right that he should fade into the background and that Jesus should take center stage. But if the priests were going to receive the apostles' testimony, they had to have that same attitude, that same attitude of he must increase, we must decrease. And that's actually why they, 
chose their second option. They, they chose their second option, of which is, was to reject and suppress the apostles' teaching because they were not willing to decrease. They were not willing to, to give up their positions of, of power and prestige, but rather they clung to them. And it was that decision to, to grasp, that decision to cling, that set in motion the events that are described for us in this next section of the book of Acts. Luke writes there, beginning in verse 17, but the high priests rose up, but the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, what did they do? They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. There are three things that I want us to see in this first paragraph of this next account. And the, the first thing I want us to see is the high priest's jealousy. We don't only need to see their jealousy, we need to see how the Lord comes to them and rescues them and recommissions them, sends them back out to do the work that they have been called to do. And then finally, we need to see the apostles' obedience. And so let's begin with the high priest's jealousy. As I was saying, from a human perspective, it is, it is not hard to understand why the high priest and, and why all those who were with him were Jealous. I mean, just, just think about what I was saying. The, the high priests, in order to recognize Jesus, would have to decrease. They would have to decrease because they were the mediators between God and his people. That is the role that they had been given. That is the role to which they had been called. If someone was seeking forgiveness under the old covenant, they, they came to God through the priests. Or if someone was, was seeking God's blessing and, and favor, they came to God through the priests. If someone simply wanted to worship and to praise God and to thank Him for the great things that He had done, they brought their worship through the priests. The priests were the mediators between God and His people. And that position of mediation was a, a position of profound power and prestige. If you've ever had a position of power, if you've ever had a, a position that, that position that brought on you the praise of men, you know how hard it can be to give it up. You, you can understand from a human perspective why they were clinging rather than releasing. But as I said, that jealousy, while it is hard or while it is easy to understand. It is, it is still something that we must ourselves understand. Because while it is easy to understand their, their jealousy from a human perspective, we have to understand what their jealousy reveals about what was actually going on in their hearts. You see, the jealousy that they were feeling, the, the jealousy of the apostles, the jealousy of, of the Jesus whom they proclaimed, the, the desire to cling to their position, all of that reveals to us that really they were serving themselves and not God. They weren't serving God, they were using Him. They, they had their own plans and agenda. They, they had their own desires and ambitions. They had their own objectives. And yes, they needed to use God in order to accomplish all that, in order to hold on to all that. But they were much more interested in using God for their own glory and for their own name and for their own ambitions than they were in actually serving him. 
They were with God so long as God was giving them what they wanted. But they were not willing to follow God when it led them away from their chosen destinations. They were using God rather than serving Him. That's what their jealousy reveals. And I want us to see that that is what jealousy always reveals. When we feel jealousy of of others, it reveals that, that we are not in a posture of submission to our King. When we are jealous of another person, whether it's of their their position or whether it's of their possessions, whether it's of their their prosperity or their, their praise, whatever it is, when we are jealous of another, we are focused on ourselves rather than God. We may be using God to get to our ends, but we are not serving Him as His slaves. God has given other people the the opportunities and the the resources that they need to do the work that He has given them to do. Whatever another person has that you might be jealous of, whether it's a position or or whether it is success in in their field or whether it is is the the prosperity of, of possessions, whatever it is, whatever God has given to them, He has given to them for His purposes. He has given it to them because He has has called them to to certain works which He prepared beforehand that they should walk in them. And of course, the same is true of you. It's not just true when you're looking at others that God has given them what they need. It is also true of you that, that God has given you what you need. He has given you your position. He has given you your opportunities. He has given you the, the resources that, that you need to do the work that He has given you to do. And therefore, when you are jealous, as the priests were jealous of the apostles... When you are jealous, as the priests were were jealous of of Jesus himself, when you are jealous, you are saying that you would rather do your will than God's will. You are saying you would rather have the resources to do somebody else's job, a job that he has prepared for somebody else to do, that you're not satisfied, that you're not content with what he has given you to do. That your script for your life is better than his script for your life. When we do not want to serve God, when we do not want to to seek first His kingdom in the way that He has prescribed for us, when we want to do our own thing, when we are jealous of another, we are revealing that we are serving ourselves rather than God. And therefore, we, we need to understand how to turn away from such jealousy. Now, when I say that we need to be content with with what God has given us, with the opportunities that He has entrusted to us, with the the resources that He has entrusted, I don't don't mean that we should never plan or dream or or think big. It's right to plan. It's right to to dream. It's right to, to have ambitions of what you want to do in the service of your king. I think of Paul wanting to take the gospel east. He he tells us that he was constantly planning. He was trying to get east. He he wanted to go there. He had a dream. He had plans. And he was working to make it happen. But as God continued to close that door, as God continued to prevent him from going east with the gospel, 
What did he do? He did the work that he was given to do in the place where he was on the day he happened to be there. He did the things that God had given him to do that day, day by day, as God gave him opportunity. He was not jealous of of others who might have had the opportunities that he wanted, but rather he did what God gave him to do. And that is what we must do as well. We must do day by day the works that God has prepared for us to do. And if we are truly focused on his will, then we will gladly not only do what he's given us to do, but we will rejoice when others successfully complete the jobs that they've been given to do. We will not be jealous of their success. We will not be jealous of their prestige. But we will will delight to know that our fellow servants are serving their king well because it is the king's service that is our true and great delight. If we are jealous of others, then we are not truly focused on our king. We're not truly focused on his kingdom. We are using him for our own purposes rather than serving him. And that is exactly what the high priests were doing. Instead of rejoicing that God had, had finally brought his plan of redemption to its perfect climax in Christ, they were focused on their own loss of power and prestige. We must guard our hearts against such jealousy. How? By regularly remembering and rejoicing that we are his servants. Why do you think Paul introduces himself as the servant of Christ at the beginning of so many of his letters? No doubt it is for the benefit of his readers. No doubt it is is to remind them of, of his calling that they might see themselves in it. But it is also to remind himself of his calling. I am a servant of Christ. This work I am doing, even the writing of this letter, I do as a servant. This is the work that God has given me to do. And that is how we must approach all of life. The the priests were clinging and grasping to a position that they had been given by the grace of God, but which had now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But rather than receiving the fulfillment with joy, they rejected it because their focus was on themselves rather than God. Each and every one of us has been called to be a servant, to do the work that he gives us to do. And if that doesn't sound to you like a a good deal, if if the idea of being a servant of the king sounds to you like like something less than ideal, then then you have believed Satan's lie. (laughs) Satan's lie tells us that it would be better for us if we could just do our own thing if we could follow our own agenda, if we could pursue our own goals. But you were not created to be your own king. And if you are your own king, you will die. You were created to be a servant of the king. And life is found only in his service. Think of of what Paul says at the, the end of Philippians. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in plenty or in want. He he can be content without jealousy. He can he can rest and 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 rejoice in all situations. Why? Because for him to live is Christ. Because he serves his king. And he will do whatever his king gives him to do with joy because it is is the kingdom that he serves. It is the kingdom that he pursues. It is the kingdom that he seeks 
first. Not His own glory or His own name. Therefore, may we be like Paul and not like these priests who cling to our own ambitions and have jealousy of those who are doing the work of God. But there's a second thing that we need to see in this command. And we, we need to not only hear the warning of the priest's jealousy, but, but we also need to, to see the, the apostles' miraculous escape. Beginning in verse 19, we read, But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of this life. So an angel comes and, and, and breaks them out of prison. He, he opens the prison doors and, and sets them free. In fact, we'll, we'll see next Sunday in the, the next paragraph that when the, the, the people who had arrested them come looking for them, they can't find them. They find the doors locked, but, but they're not there and they're, they're terribly confused. God breaks them out of prison. But he not only breaks them out of prison, he, he gives them a command. And we really need to see both of these. We need to see the release itself and we need to see the command that follows us. Let's look at the release first. As I said, an angel comes and sets them free. He, he, he releases them from the public prison where they had, had been um, uh, chained and incarcerated. And this is a reminder to us. It is a reminder to us that the God that we serve is a God who rules and overrules in all situations. It is a reminder to us that the God who we serve has purposes that, that cannot be thwarted or even hindered. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the God who, who does whatever He pleases. He is the, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies who, who sends them to do His bidding and who cannot be stopped. Think of the fiery army that surrounded the city of, of Dothan when the king of Syria came to, to kill Elisha. The king of Syria had a, had a particular hatred for Elisha because Elisha uh, continued to reveal his plans but through the, the Spirit of God. He, he continued to reveal his plans to the king. And, and so the, the king of Syria said, we need to get rid of that guy. And he, and he comes looking for him. And he comes and he surrounds this small city of, of Dothan. And when they, you know, the people of Dothan awake, and especially Elisha's servant, and they look out and they see the army of Syria, they are terrified. But Elisha says, do not worry. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he prays that his servant's eyes might be opened to see the fiery army that surrounds the city. The Lord God Almighty was with Elisha, and therefore the king of Syria could not touch him. That is the reality, not just for an Old Testament prophet. That is the reality for each and every one of us. The Lord God Almighty is for us. And if he is for us, whom should we fear? If he is for us, who can possibly stand against us? This, this is the, the reality, the, the truth that ought to calm all of our fears and our anxieties. The Lord God Almighty is for us. But notice, all the power of God is for us, for a purpose. God does not save us to, uh, to, to serve ourselves. He does not set us free that we can go off and, and do our own thing. He saves us that we might serve Him. He saves us that we might do His work. 
And this is the second thing that we need to, to see about the apostles' miraculous escape. The angel who leads them out of the prison sends them back into the temple. Sends them back to the very place where they had originally been arrested. Why? Because they had work to do. Because God had, had called them into his service. Because they were his chosen instruments to, to proclaim the gospel to, to God's people. They were his witnesses to, to take the good news of the kingdom to Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. And so God brings the apostles out of prison that they might continue the work that he had given them to do. He saves them that they might serve him. They've been rescued that they might return to their given work. And again, this is true not only of the apostles, this is true of all believers. We have been saved to serve. Yes, we have been saved by grace. We, we see this in Ephesians chapter 2. We have been saved by grace apart from works. We did nothing to, to earn our reconciliation with God. While we were yet enemies, God pursued us and God gave Jesus to, to die for our sins that we who were under the, the condemnation of sin might be set free, that our, our sins might be forgiven, that, that we might be justified and adopted as His children. This is all ours by grace apart from works of the law. We have done nothing to earn it. It is His his free gift to those who believe. But what does Ephesians 2 go on to say? We have been saved by grace apart from works, that we might do works. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do those good works which He has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. God has saved us for His service. We actually see that here in the words of the angel. Look again at what the angel says. He says, go and speak to the people all the words of this life. He refers to the gospel that the apostles have been given to proclaim as the words of this life. Now that obviously refers to the, the new birth that we have received through the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to bring dry bones to life. It makes the dead alive together with Christ. And not only does it make it us alive, but it, but it rescues us from the sentence of death under which we languished. We were, we were previously condemned. We were, we were previously children of wrath. But, but we have been rescued from that sentence. Our, our, the, the record of debt that was against us has been nailed to the cross. It is, our debt has been paid in full. And so it is a, a word of life in the sense that it brings us to life, that it regenerates us. It is a word of life in the sense that it sets us free from a sentence of death. But it is also a word of life in the sense that we have been made alive to live our lives to God. The new birth and the declaration of righteousness is only the beginning of a new life, of a, of a new race that has been marked out before us as God's people. A race which we must now Run. We have been saved to live our lives to the praise of His glory. This is actually the point that the, the high priests and, and the, uh, those who were with Him were missing at the beginning. It was, the, it was their blindness to this reality, to the words of life that made them jealousy. They did not understand that contentment and, and satisfaction and full joy is found only in serving God, only in devoting ourselves to, to His 
services. They thought they had believed the lie of Satan. They believed that that their best life was found in serving themselves and and clinging to their positions and clinging to their prestige and, and clinging to their power. They did not understand that life comes only through dying, only through losing our lives to follow Him. But that is the the truth of the gospel. Jesus said, the one who loses his life to follow me, that is the one who will truly live. That is the one who will know true and abundant life. So again, as we see the apostles set free from prison, they might go immediately back to service. We have to ask ourselves if we share their faith. Have we, like them, devoted our lives to Jesus without reservation or qualification? Have we denied ourselves to follow Him? Our our work is not the same as theirs. But are we day by day, day after day, every day, until He comes again, devoting ourselves to the work that He has given us to do? Are we His servants? Is He our King? Are we daily dying to ourselves that we might follow Him? That is the truth that we are called to. And again, if you you haven't yet taken that step, it, it looks scary. Jesus says it looks like dying. It looks like dying, but the truth is that it is only through dying to ourselves that we can have true life in Him. What better illustration of this could we have on a day like this than than mothers? (laughs) Are mothers not those who die to themselves to give life to others? It is hard work to be a mother. (laughs) It is hard work to be a parent. It it is hard work to to raise children, to to bring them up in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord, to love them well, to to comfort them in their their trials. Being a mother is hard. It It requires sacrifice. And yet it is a way of life. It is a way that brings joy. It is a way that brings a deep satisfaction and contentment. And in that, it is a picture of the Christian life. For it is not only mothers who are called to sacrifice. All of us are called to sacrifice. All of us are called to lose our lives, to to give them away in the service of others, to give them away in the service of our King that we might know His life and know it abundantly. Really, that's the, that brings us to our final point. Because the last thing I want us to see in this paragraph is the apostles' obedience. Look again what Luke says. He says, And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. As I said, they'd already been arrested twice for preaching and teaching in the temple courts. And yet, at the command of the Lord, they immediately go back into the temple and begin teaching again. And again, there are at least two things that we we need to see in this. There's two things we need to see in their their immediate uh, obedience. The, The first thing we need to notice is simply that the apostles do not think of opposition as evidence that they are out of God's will, that they are somehow off kilter, that they are somehow on the wrong path. We, we sometimes think that way. We think if, if we're facing oppositions, if things are hard, if there are obstacles in our way, if the doors aren't just uh, freely opening before us, we, we think, well, maybe we must be outside of God's will. 
Because surely if I was doing God's will, things would be easy. If that's what you think, read the Bible more. (laughs) That's not the way it works for God's people. That's not what God has, has planned for us. Opposition does not mean that we are not in God's will. And the apostles don't fall into that trap. Now it's true that here they have an explicit command from an angel who had just set them free from prison. It seems like it'd be pretty easy to know God's will in that particular situation. But, but even apart from such an explicit word in, in such, a, such a dramatic way, we are still called to, to do the will of God as we know it, as we discern it, regardless of the opposition we face. In fact, it is sometimes God's will that we press through the opposition that we, we face. We sometimes think of, God's will, of open doors as omens of God's will. That, that is not a safe way to proceed. Sometimes God wants you not to walk through an open door. Other times he wants you to, to press on a closed one. Uh, the, the circumstances of our life are not a fair and safe way to determine what God's will is. His word is the revelation of his will. Uh, the counsel of his, his people as we seek to understand it and apply it to our particular situations helps us to understand his, his will. The, the path of least resistance is not necessarily God's will. Opposition does not mean that you are running contrary to God's will. But rather, we must, through uh, focusing on the Word and, and being in counsel with His people, we must discern what it is that God has given us to do, and then we must press into that, regardless of the opposition that we face. And we will face opposition. There will be those who seek to to work against us. At the very least, Satan will will work against you and and his his demons will work against you, but he often works through people. He works through the world. He will work through even your own flesh as he he riles it up to, to beat against your soul. You will face opposition as you seek to do the will of God, but you must press through. You must seek to, to do that which He has given you to do to the praise of His glory. But regardless of the opposition, we must do the work that He has given us to do, and we must do it immediately. That's the second thing that we see here. We note again in verse 21 that, that when the apostles heard the word of the angel, when they heard the Lord's command, they entered the temple at daybreak. They did not delay. Sarah and I were early parents, young parents. We were often told, whether in, in books or in parenting classes or just by other uh, parents, delayed obedience is disobedience. Have you ever heard that? Delayed obedience is, is disobedience. Well, it's actually true. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Why? Because delayed obedience means you're still calling the shots. It means you're still in charge. It means you're still following your agenda. You'll do what you're told to do when it seems good to you. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Immediate obedience, by contrast shows us that you know yourself to be a servant, shows that you know yourself to be one under authority, that you do not direct your own life, but that you follow the directions of your 
king. And that's what we see here. The apostles do not delay. At daybreak, they enter the temple courts and again begin to preach and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, even as the apostles enter at daybreak, that is what we are all called to do. Their obedience here is a picture of the Christian life. We are to do today without delay, the things that we are given to do today. Paul says in Galatians that we are to do good as we have opportunities. The opportunities that that come our way today are to be taken advantage of today. Think of the the good Samaritan. He he responded to the need that God literally placed in his path. (laughs) He, He responded to the need that was in his road on the way to Jericho. In the same way, we must respond to the needs We must respond to the opportunities. We must do those good works that God gives us to do today. That is what a servant does. That is how a servant responds. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Immediate obedience is the obedience of a servant. A servant who honors and delights to do the work of his king. And again, if we, if we find this difficult, if we find this burdensome, it's because we do not yet understand the God whom we serve. We do not yet understand the God who has called us into His service, the God who has prepared these works for us to do. He is a good God. He is a God who so loved the world that He gave His Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. He has called us into life, the life of the age to come. And it is in His service that we live that life, that we experience that life, that we we enter into the full joy of that life. So long as we cling to our own authority, so long as we cling to our own position, we cut ourselves off from the life that we have been called to. But if we will die, if we will set aside the jealousy of the high priests, if we will simply receive what He has given them, then we will know life and we will know it abundantly. And because such a King has called us into His service and because He has given us such work to do, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice uh, in Your grace. We rejoice in your calling. Father, here in these verses, we we see that that you are a God who can rescue from from any circumstance. But Father, we see that you set us free that we might serve. You, You call us to do the good works that you have prepared. Father, give us the grace that we need to receive your calling and to to respond accordingly. Give us the grace that we need to to enter the temple courts at daybreak, to do good as you give us opportunity with the resources that you provide. Father, this is the life you have called us to. It is the good life. Give us the faith to receive it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.